0: Hello, Anne Holly here, your Editor Roundtable podcast producer. Once in a while, we rethink things after the recording is finished and come up with better answers to one of the six core questions. That happened in today's episode. You'll hear us batting around whether the global genre of dead poet society is its external genre of society historical or its internal genre of worldview education. We arrived at a controlling idea or theme that combines them but we tried really hard to end on the positive values of those themes. Whereas in later discussions, we came to feel that dead poet society might really be more of a cautionary tale than a prescriptive one, reminding us that tyranny prevails when the underclass, in this case, young people, accedes to its demands. We'll summarize our thoughts on this in the show notes. Feel free to let us know what you think on Twitter at StoryGridRT. And meanwhile, on with the show.
1: Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable podcast. This show is dedicated to helping you become a better editor, following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years of experience. My name is Jari Bolander, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Joining me shortly are four of my fellow certified StoryGrid editors, Valerie Francis, Anne Hawley, Kim Kessler, and Leslie Watts. Each week, we watch a movie from one of the 12 content genres and complete a Global Fool's Cap worksheet and then discuss it using the six core questions. This week, we're analyzing the 1989 movie Dead Poets Society, screenplay by Tom Schulman and directed by Peter Weir. Here's a synopsis adopted from Wikipedia. In the autumn of 1959, shy Todd Anderson begins his senior year of high school at Welton Academy an all-male elite prep school. On the first day of classes, he is surprised by the unorthodox teaching methods of the new English teacher, John Keating, a Welton alumnus who encourages his students to make your lives extraordinary, a sentiment he summarizes with the Latin expression, carpe diem. Upon learning that Keaton was a member of the unsanctioned Dead Poets Society, Neil restarts the club, and he and his friends sneak off campus to a cave where they read poetry and verse. Neil discovers his love of acting and gets a role in the local production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, despite the fact that his domineering father wants him to be in the Ivy League and ultimately go to medical school. Neil's father discovers his involvement in the play and forces him to quit. Devastated, Neil goes to Keating, who advises him to stand his ground and prove to his father that his love of acting is something he takes seriously. Neil's father unexpectedly shows up at the performance, He takes Neil home, and says he's been withdrawn from Welton, only to be rolled in a military academy to prepare him for Harvard. Unable to find the courage to stand up to his father, a distraught Neil commits suicide. The headmaster investigates Neil's death at the request of his family. Richard blames Neil's death on Keating to escape punishment for his own participation in the Dead Poets Society, and names the other members confronted by Charlie Richard, urges the rest of them to let Keating take the fall. Each of the boys is called into Nolan's office to sign a letter attesting to the truth of Richard's allegations. Keating is fired and the headmaster takes over teaching the class. Keating interrupts the class to collect his personal effects. Before he leaves, Todd shouts that all of them were forced to sign the letter and his resulting dismissal and that Neil's death was not his fault. Todd stands on his desks and salutes Keating with the words, Oh, captain, my captain. Half the class stands on their desks as well. Keating is deeply touched by all these gestures, And then the movie ends. So uh, before we begin, I think it's only fitting that we start with a poem from a dead poet. This poem is not in the movie, but it's one of my favorite poems. And it captures the struggles that we as writers and editors sometimes go through. It's called Invictus by William Ernest Henley. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winched nor cried aloud. Under the burgeoning of chance, my head is bloodied but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how the straight the gate, now how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. With that, we will talk about the global genre for Dead Poets Society. Valerie, why don't you start us off?
2: Yeah, I know we had a little bit of discussion about this uh, before we came on air, and I've come up with the global genre as uh, an internal genre, worldview education, and I think it's a mini plot story as opposed to an arch plot, which we see more often. The reason I'm saying it's a worldview education is when I'm trying to determine what the global genre is, I think about what the story is about. What's the point of the story? And this talks to theme and all theme keeps coming up. And in this particular story, you, it's hard to talk about global, the global genre without also talking about the theme. So in a worldview education plot, the characters are trying to find meaning in their lives. And I think that's exactly what, what the boys are doing. I think the four main characters would be Neil, Todd, Knox, and Charlie Dalton. They're searching for happiness, for belonging, for a sense of purpose. And in that way, it's much like the film Billy Elliot that we watched, uh, where Billy is trying to find something that's important to them, to him as well. All of them are being told how to live their lives. All of them are being told what to do. None of them likes it. So when Mr. Keating challenges them to seize the day and to to think for themselves, each of those four characters does that. They set out to find their own journey and they pair in my opinion. Uh, On the one hand, you have Neil and Knox. And on the other hand, you have Todd and Charlie. So with Neil and Knox, both of them think for themselves. They both have something they want. Neil wants to act and Knox wants the girl. And that requires both of them to step out and do things differently. With Knox, uh, there's a whole big scene where he gets up the courage to call Chris, who's the girl he has a crush on. And it scares him. This is a really big thing for him to do, to step out and call this girl who is beautiful. She also has a boyfriend who is the football hero. And he calls to find only to find out that she had been thinking about him and was going to invite him to a party. When Charlie says, yeah, but she's not going to go to the party with you, Knox says, that's not the point. The point is that she was thinking about me. And as audience members, we know that the point is really that he got up the courage to call, and he got up the courage to step out and do something different. And I think that's a prescriptive tale. Sometimes when you step out and have the courage to do the thing that scares you, you win. You get it. By contrast, we have Neil's story. The thing that Neil wants most in life is to be an actor. And he goes against his father's wishes to get the lead in the play, as Jari mentioned. And of course, you know, he's, he's a fabulous actor. Everyone loves him. It comes against him in the end because his father really comes down hard on him and says, that's it, you're leaving Welton. You're going to go to a military college. That's too much for Neil to handle. And he commits suicide. So on his side, it's a cautionary tale. And both of these things, I think, are on point with the theme. And I'll get to that in a few minutes. The other pairing, I think, is Todd and Charlie. Neither one of these characters steps out and does anything of any value through the course of the film. Todd is so shy that he can't even stand up in front of the class. Now he does do that uh, when Mr. Keating really encourages him, but that's the only point that he actually steps out and finds a voice of his own and thinks for himself until the very last scene in the film. And by then it's too late. Charlie is stepping out and doing stuff all the time, but there's no rhyme, or reason to it. He doesn't have a sense of meaning. He doesn't have a passion. He's acting out for the sake of acting out. And that's not helpful either. And Mr. Keating calls him on that. So by the end of the film, while neither Charlie nor Todd did anything productive during the course of the story, by the end of it, we have a sense that they finally gotten the message and they're now ready to find meaning in their lives. They're, they're going on the right path. And then, of course, you have Kussman. He's the anti-hero. He is not going to step out and do anything unusual or different. He's just going to follow the rules and do what he's told, and he represents the status quo. There will always be people who keep going and maintain the status quo. The external genre, which is the secondary genre in this case, I think is a society historical because it's set in a very specific period of time. It's in 1959. This is sort of coming toward the end of that father knows best era. And in fact, in with Neil's story, it it literally is a father knows best story. And it's right before all the rebellion in the early 60s around the Vietnam War. So we're starting to see the social tide changing. So that's what I came up for genre.
1: That's great, Valerie. Uh, Thanks for that. It is interesting that I think Neil's dad plays the guy in that 70s show as <laughs> the dad. So he does. Like, yeah, he oh, does. This is a little weird. You should be <laughs> funny. You shouldn't be such a creep. I know, Kim and Leslie, you had a, a little bit of a different view.
3: The more and more that I hear the arguments for edu- worldview education, the more I can see it. But what I kept seeing was... They all kind of go through this naive experience of thinking that they can change the world. You know, Mr. Keating gives them this idea that if we embrace poetry and embrace love and all these things that do have meaning in our lives, that we can just do those things. And so they all grasp onto this idea and they embrace it. And it goes very well for them until the powers that be, right, their fathers and the school administrators really clamp down on them and don't want them to change To me, it was really like getting that lesson of this is the way the world really works. You're not going to be able to just embrace this carpe diem without resistance. And so then in the end, for them to to go through having to lose a friend, right? To have a friend commit suicide and have to really experience their first loss. I I just kept thinking about going from you haven't really experienced the world. You know, they're all virgins, right? They've been told what their parents have been telling them what to do. So this is really their first time to step out and try to do things on their own. And they meet such harsh reality, right? Like losing a friend and like the fact that people aren't going to just let them do what they want and they're going to have to find their way in that. So I really got, the reason why I landed on maturation was that feeling of, wow, it's harsh out here, right? Like it's harsh out here. Yeah. And, And then in the end, the reason why Todd stands up is because he's found something worth standing up for, right? right? He's found a reason. So that makes sense to me. I was on maturation for so long. And and I still really feel like it really ties with that society theme of you start to learn the way the world is. And that is a matter of sophistication that you didn't have before. Um, And you've went through your first loss and all that stuff. But I definitely see that education piece.
4: To me, I don't see maturation in Todd or the other boys in a way He doesn't really see the world differently, so he doesn't expand his worldview or go from black and white thinking to more gray thinking, but he finds meaning in what he sees. And it's a really subtle distinction, I think, but that's where I see the difference in that in education plots, you don't see as much movement or action in the character as you do in a maturation plot.
1: Okay. Yeah, that's a good distinction. So, Kim, why don't you take us through the beginning hook, the middle build, and the ending payoff?
3: So, the beginning hook, it's really all about we start school, we meet Mr. Keating in his avant garde teaching style, and we have our first classes with him. And, you know, he opens the veil, right? Pulls back the veil past, you know, Welton's four pillars of discipline and, you know, excellence and all these things. And they find out about the Dead Poets Society. So, it's really taking them from introducing them to Mr. Keating all the way up to where they find out about the Dead Poets Society and they decide to do it themselves. So the turning point really, I feel like, is when they find out about the Dead Poets Society and what it was, Mr. Keating tells them about it. And Neil gets the idea of, we should do that. Um, And then the crisis question is, Should everybody join him? You know, Neil's has to try to convince everybody that this is a great idea. And it's, I put it as irreconcilable goods. You know, you have got that freedom of expression versus following the rules and, you know, the safety that comes with following the rules. And the climax was to me was that they sneak out at night. And the resolution is that they hold their very first dead poet society meeting. The middle build was tricky to me um, because it is a mini plot. And so each character has their own moments. And you were kind of following Neil, we're following Todd, and we're following Knox and Charlie Dalton trying to get their things that they want and their own experiences. So I went ahead and focused specifically on Neil's commandments um, in this one because he's the one that leads us into the ending payoff. So it's the boys continue to grow in independence and free thinking under the radar and each have their own turning points until the existing power gets wise and doubles down. So in the inciting incident, we've got, you know, Neil decides he wants to be an actor and he's going to try out for that play and not tell his father. Progressive complications and ultimately the turning point is Neil's father finds out about the play and tells him to quit. The crisis question for Neil, it's a best bad choice. He could talk to his father and be honest, as Mr. Keating suggests, and face the possible wrath and consequences, or he could stay silent and risk losing his ultimate spirit for life. In the climax, Neil's it's off screen, which this bothered me. I For a while there, I thought, I wondered if he actually did talk to his father at all, or if he's just lying and going to do it anyway, um, which I'm still not entirely sure about. But um, Neil tells Mr. Keating that he did speak with his father, and he's going to let him finish the play, and he thinks he's going to let him stick with acting, but he's very unconvincing. And you can tell that, Neil's really upset and not feeling confident at all. The resolution here is that they all go to the play, um, which turns out to be wonderful. The ending payoff... Instead of going along with his parents' plan for a life, Neil chooses to take his own life. An investigation pins the death on Mr. Keating and the boys are forced to sign a statement or be expelled. It feels like that ironic win-but-lose, lose-but-win ending where the boys are not able to fight against the powers that be and save Mr. Keating's job, but they gain that new perspective and will say meaning, of course, about life. And they show that Mr. Keating, that his work was not in vain and that though they are bound on the outside, inside they are changed. So again, we have the inciting incident as... Neil's parents withdraw him from Welton, they he's sending him to military school, and tell him that he will be a doctor. Um, and then that prompts Neil to kill himself. And that leads to the investigation, and that the boys are required to sign the statement, or they'll be held or, or they'll be expelled. And so the crisis question here is, it's a best bad choice, tell the truth, and don't sign the statement, and you risk being expelled, uh, or you will be expelled, uh, or you lie and you sign, which means you'll be safe and you get to keep your position at school and please your parents and all of those things, but you betray Mr. Keating and everything that he's taught them. So the climax here is that Todd sees that the others have signed the statement and feeling powerless with his parents and the principal there in the room, he signs it too. But in the end, our resolution is that Todd and the others honor Mr. Keating by standing on their desks and yelling or calling out, oh, captain, my captain, despite that the principal is yelling at them to sign. I thought it was interesting the way that it felt like the beginning hook ends positively. The midpoint ends positively. You know, they kind of – each of them gets this turning point where we have Todd with his barbaric yawp, right? And um we have – Knox calls the girl, you know, all these different things that are happening. Neil gets the part. They're, it's really feeling like it's going on a high note. And then you can really feel that after that midpoint shift. um, I think the the exact midpoint in the movie is when they're out walking. They're outside in the courtyard and they're doing their different walks. And that's kind of the when you can see that the headmaster is looking down from the window. So that's kind of the bad guys closing in sort of feeling where we know it's going to turn soon. And then after that, sure enough, Dox goes to the party and gets punched in the face. Charlie gets caught for his article in the paper and they find out about the Dead Poet Society. Neil gets caught. So it just, it's, it was interesting to see those two very different shifts where it's all going good at the beginning. It's really, it, you know, it, they're having so much fun and then it's the power really, really comes down on them hard. So yeah, so that's uh, the summary there of the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff.
1: Wonderful. Thanks so much for that. Uh, now on to the uh, obligatory scenes for the worldview education story. I know, Leslie, you had that this week. So why don't you uh, kick it off?
4: Okay. So I did this from Todd's point of view. I see him as, even though we have a mini plot, I totally agree with that, but uh, to keep it tight. And to really zero in on the education plot, I focused on him. So inciting opportunity or challenge, Mr. Keating encourages the boys to seize the day. Then the protagonist denies responsibility to respond to the opportunity or challenge. In here, Todd Anderson skips the study session with Neil and the others. And Just kind of begs off, no, I'm not going to join you. Three, forced to respond, the protagonist lashes out against the requirement to change behavior. Todd tells Mr. Keating he hasn't done, he hasn't written the poem that was given as the assignment. Then number four, the protagonist learns what the external antagonist's object of desire is. And to me, this is the scene in the courtyard where Mr. Keating is there doing the walking and marching, and he's talking about how easy it is to to conform without intentionally doing so, and that that's kind of what authority wants you to do. Number five, the protagonist's initial strategy fails. So their initial strategy, or I feel like his initial strategy, is to, to stay below the radar. His expression is fine as long as it happens within the confines of his tiny group, um, tiny and supportive group. But Nwanda slash Dalton reveals the secret of the dead poet society. And so they can't hide beneath the radar with their private rebellion. Six, during an Allah's Lost moment, the protagonist realizes that there is or can be meaning in the world. And I see this as Neil's death really brings home to Todd the initial lesson in the, you know, in the seize the day scene where. You know, it's like we're all going to die. We're all going to be worm food. Is is you know one of the ways that Mr. Keating put it, and this really brings it home for him. And so I feel like that's that all is lost moment. Then there's an action moment when the protagonist's gift is expressed, and to me, I see this when when Mr. Nolan tells Mr. Keating he has to leave the classroom. Todd protests and says it wasn't Mr. Keating's fault that Neil died. And then immediately after that, protagonist is rewarded with a deeper understanding of meaning in the world. At that point, Todd gets up on his desk and says, you know oh captain my captain you know which represents like he's seeing the world from a different point of view and your message got through to me and then the other boys stand up in solidarity as well and so i see that as the reward for being willing to take a step and and allow me allow meaning for meaning in the world
1: yeah that that's totally true i mean todd finally understands life and in at least life in how he can control his actions. Um, that's just such a great ending scene. I mean, God, how many times as a, as a young man, did I want to like, be like, you know, rebel against something stupid or lunacy or, uh, you know, it's just, everyone has their awkward times, but there's just some days where you just like, can't, you know, I want to try to be independent <clears throat> as best I can. So Yeah. I know that was really, really wonderful. So on to the conventions of worldview education. And for that, we are going to throw it over to Anne.
0: The conventions of the worldview plot in general are, first of all, a strong mentor figure, which this movie has in spades. Mr. Keating, he's an iconic example of the great teacher type. It's like an archetype. Um, more than just Obi-Wan Kenobi uttering cryptic, mystical guidance. He is a clear. He's in a teacher position. He's the center of the story in a lot of ways. Um, So I think this is a particular story type with a teacher at its center. We'll probably talk a little more about that later. The second convention is that a big social problem exists as subtext to the story, such as racism, misogyny, class conflict. And I think class plays a huge role in controlling the boy's behavior and choices because they believe their futures depend heavily on their being part of this school and having graduated from this school, their futures probably do depend heavily on it in 1959. Um, Class divide is also mildly at play between Knox and Chris, the, the girl he falls in love with, because she apparently goes to the public high school in town. She's sort of a townie. And I think it was interesting that in 1959, if the gender roles had been reversed, if he was the poor boy and she was at the rich girl's school, that would have been a much bigger issue. But... The poor girl is allowed to marry up, I guess. So, so it wasn't as much of an issue. The third convention is shapeshifters as hypocrites. Secondary characters say one thing and do another. I thought that Cameron was the most hypocritical character. He His very opening entrance onto the story is he's making fun of the new kid, but yet he's willing to shut up and so that he can join the club. But he doesn't join in until he's sure that everybody else has. He's the last to rip the pages out of the poetry textbook. He's the first to remind everyone else that they're breaking the rules. He's sort of the brown noser, who, and he's the first to give in to pressure at the end to betray uh, Mr. Keating. A clear point of no return is the next convention, the moment when the protagonist knows that they can never go back to the way things used to be. If Neil is the protagonist, and I did have some question about who is the protagonist in this story, the point of no return is clearly, literally, when he pulls the trigger. But I also felt, to what Kim was saying earlier, that there's a point where he, I thought he was lying to Mr. Keating about his father having given permission for him to go act on stage. And that was a kind of point of no return for him, too, where he he lies to Mr. Keating He's going to go on stage despite his father's disapproval. And once he's made that decision, there's no backing away from it. However, there is no greater point of no return than actual death. So I thought that if Neil is the, the central character, the fact that he dies before the ending kind of made me wonder who whose story I was really looking at the most. The final convention of a worldview story is ironic win-but-lose, lose-but-win, bittersweet ending, Definitely, Todd has a bittersweet ending. He's lost his friend, but he's gained meaning in life or beginning to be open to understanding life at a higher level. But I thought that the real bittersweet ending belonged to Keating, who uh, loses his job and his career over his unorthodox methods and might, in fact, have been a bit culpable in Neil's suicide. But he also goes away with proof that he has made a positive difference in the lives of most of the boys. So it was definitely very bittersweet at the end.
1: Yeah, it was a, was definitely a, a sad ending that Neil was gone, but then, you know, there, that revolutionary point of view where these boys will never be the same, not only after losing their friend, but also what Mr. Keating had taught them. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I see your point. I, I think each one of these characters has got pretty much all of those... Point of no return, like the whole conventions for all of them, and it's just really hard to nail down one. I mean, I know we we typically try to find okay, who's the main protagonist, and then okay, let's let's go after that. So. But but great great job on that and it's it's definitely this has got a lot of layers it's not it's not hot fuzz layers <laughs> by the way but it's got layers yes. you know <laughs> it's really cool and I just love Robin Williams and and like his when he does his little accents in the classroom I'm like oh, <laughs> this is why I love that guy so much so all right on to the point of view in the narrative device and for that our colleague Valerie is going to take us through it.
2: Okay. So given that it's a mini plot, it, there's, um, we've got a multiple points of view here. And that makes total sense. Interestingly, though, the points of view are all the kids. We don't get the points of view specifically in the adults. The other thing I really liked about point of view, given that it's a film and the, the theme of the film, we have a lot of camera angles that are very high looking down. And to me, that sort of reflected the scene where uh, Mr. Keating stands on his desk and says, you know, why does he stand up there? It's to remind himself that there are different ways of looking at things. And uh, that's what I thought was really interesting. And there's a couple of shots that are low. Like, for example, at one point in the classroom, Mr. Keating crouches down and he says, you know, gather around, boys. I want to tell you something. And the camera then is like someone else sitting on the floor across from Mr. Keating who's crouched down. So I thought that was really interesting given the theme of the story.
1: Great. Yeah. I mean, you're right. It is interesting how it goes up and down and they're trying to get there mostly from the boy's perspective. And, and maybe when when the angle is up higher, it's more like ominous, like overarching the society is just like pushing down on them. So um, does anyone yeah. have any more more comments on that?
3: Yeah, it felt a little bit like the Great Gatsby in terms of how the point of view works where the story, it really feels at first like it's about Neil because he's just so vibrant and there's so much... Life in him, and and he's really you know he befriends Todd and really helps Todd come out of his shell and helps him toss his horrible desk set <laughs> off of the ramparts, you know that kind of thing. But ultimately, you know Neil dies and Todd is there, new at the beginning, and he's the one that's there standing at the end. Um, and so it kind of had that Gatsby, Nick Carraway kind of feeling where the story it felt like it was about Neil, but in the end, it's Todd who had been the observer that is ultimately changed. I
0: thought because it is a mini plot with a shifting point of view, and we see we see the point of view of many of the characters, there are scenes where only Mr. Keating and another teacher are in the scene. So, so it's all over the point of view map. I felt like the worldview message or theme that we're talking about worked less well than it might have if they'd been really strictly Todd's point of view, kind of like, Nick Carraway and Gatsby, where we're looking at this world through his eyes. So, this is why I fell out more or less on the side of society being the global genre, which I think we, I think I've been overruled on that, but I felt like the mini plot structure really showing so many points of view and different stories cinematically, I think it would have worked better if the point of view had been more strictly. Yeah, uh, no, from no, I Todd's mean, that, that's, that's a valid
1: point. I mean, this this, there is definitely society overtones in this and. Um, and it's a great example of the great Gatsby where it's, you know, it is one point of view, or at least it tries to be, he's the narrator. So that, that, that might've worked a little bit better, but again, I mean, this is one of those examples where like the overall macro plot, the way it's done is just works. You know, it's just like, you just feel for these boys and also for Mr. Keaton Keating, sorry. So, um, on to the objects of desire, which is the wants and needs. And Valerie, I think you're gonna take us through that one as well.
2: Yeah, okay. So they I think to me, the boys all have the same need, and that is to find meaning in their life and to learn to think for themselves. So that's their need. Their wants, however, are different. Neil wants to act. Knox wants the girl. Todd wants to belong. He doesn't have a family. He is always kind of on the outskirts of the group of boys. Uh, Neil is constantly inviting him in uh, and reassuring him that, yes, he belongs there because he's used to and he's comfortable in the background. And Charlie Dalton, it doesn't know what he wants. Uh, That's why his acts are random, He's lashing out for the sake of lashing out, and Keating calls him on that one when he does the the stunt about the the phone call from God. He says, you know, if it had been a collect call, that would have been good. <laughs> I like that part. And Kussman wants to do what's expected of him. He does not want to rock the boat in any way, and he doesn't. And he definitely is the one who needs to think for himself the most, but he never will. So that's what I came up with for the opposite desire.
1: Wonderful. This next one, I hopefully you're going to nail it out of the park because it's said multiple times in the thing. So I know, I know, Valerie, I know it's a hard one. I know it's a hard one, but but but, what's the controlling idea? Well, just let's wait for it. Let's wait for it.
2: diem. Uh, yes. Yes. yes, yes,
1: yes, yes. <laughs> we should all seize the day. Uh-huh.
2: I did it. Woohoo! <laughs> one of the things that I really like about this film that I didn't notice before, you know when i watched it before story grid i've said before that in my life there's a big line you know there's everything i read and watched before story grid and now there's everything i'm reading and watching after story grid so i even though carpe diem is obviously the theme i never noticed how prevalent it it was in this movie every single thing is on theme Again, you know. Again, the theme that, that uh, the whole finding meaning in carpe diem is similar to Billy Elliot. I've said that already. Keaton keeps whistling the 1812 Overture, and I had to look that up to find out a little bit more about it. It is actually was actually written to commemorate Russia's defense against Napoleon, like when they they managed to fend him off. And of course, I'm not American, so I had to look <laughs> this up as well.
3: <laughs> um, yes.
2: And as you all know, it's also yes. something that is played on Independence Day, which is also the states breaking away from the Commonwealth and going its own way. So I thought that, that was a great just really that is cool. Because uh, him whistling that tune, thinking for yourselves and doing things yourselves and finding your own meaning. And that's exactly what the US and Russia did in both of those ins- instances. So that was really cool. Todd doesn't want to join the Dead Poets Society because he doesn't want to have to stand up and read in front of anyone. And Neil says, well, that doesn't matter. Todd doesn't want to do it because that's not how it's done. And Neil says, forget how it's done. I mean, all these little tiny references to the theme everywhere. And the other one that, well, I could go on and on, but the last one that I'll mention is the fact that they take, they meet in a cave. For for uh, the Dead Poet Society meetings are actually in a cave, and of course we're we're all writers and editors here, and so Joseph Campbell is never far from our minds. And in his work, one of the quotes that people talk about from Joseph Campbell a lot is the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. So them going into the cave, literally for this Dead Poet Society meeting, is helping them find their voice, helping them find meaning, which I just thought was just really cool.
1: That's a great metaphor too. That's just perfect. We go inside the other world, right? We're, we're inside this cave. We are who we, who we really aspire to be. But once we leave the cave, we're conforming to society. So yeah, that's, there's a lot of symbolism. And again, the carpe diem thing is just so awesome.
3: Valerie, I loved all of those things that you had to say. They just, they really, really enriches the whole way to look at the story. And I, I w- just wanted to mention quickly, the thing about the cave I think it's also a, like a Jungian, they talk about the Jungian cave, right? You know, everybody has this cave and you have the dragon that's guarding your cave and nobody's allowed to go in your cave. You don't even go in your cave. Like nobody wants to go in there, but that's where your gold is. So you're going to have to slay the dragon. You're going to have to go in there, go deep with yourself, that shadow self and go get that treasure out. So that's my favorite thing about story is that um it's how we can explore ourselves and each other and our world and that the psychology stuff and the story stuff are very mirrored and it's just one of my favorite favorite things so since i was stuck on maturity i had this uh this theme kind of mapped out here but uh, we could exchange maturity uh, maybe for for meaning so we'll say meaning happens when protagonists recognize the power stacked against them and that freedom or change is not instant or easy but in spite of that continue to embrace small actions of revolution so that was kind of my <laughs> take on it um that and then it really is it was about seizing the day in the face of authority and power or you know this thing that's trying to take your meaning from you and make you just be a cog you you know, a conformist or or whatever. So yeah. So I like that it's, I like the pairing of, yes, you seize the day in the face of uh position. So that was the only part I really wanted to point out.
0: It's a good take. I, I feel like you conveyed how this movie sits right on the line between worldview and society. To me, I keep coming back to the society theme. So I suggested tyranny reigns because that's the school is tyranny until young people empower themselves through meaningful acts of rebellion. Because I really wanted yes. to capture the society external genre.
3: I love that. Movie. I love that, Anne. That's great.
1: Yeah. No. That's a. That's a. That's a good one too. I mean, this is all about leading your own way make every day count, think for yourself, you're going to be a young person in the world. And I mean, this is the perfect, you know, 1959, the start of the 60s is, you know, literally just around the corner, and there's going to be a ton of angst and societal turmoil. So that's, yeah, that's spot on. So how about some good examples of special scene types, tropes, tie-ins to other genres, etc.?
0: For me, this movie belongs to a class of teacher and student stories that, that are, it's a favorite with me that goes back to, to Sir with Love, Mr. Holland's Opus, Stand and Deliver, Dangerous Minds, Glee, even to some extent, where the mentor figure is central. And very often these are performance stories, uh, which this one isn't, but it has some elements of it in, the the boy having to stand up and and speak or uh, Neil going on stage, but it really wasn't a performance genre story. But they're always worldview too, with a great teacher who opens the minds and expands the horizons of young students. It's a very gratifying story form. A lot of these stories involve underprivileged kids, underfunded schools, the wrong side of the tracks, that type of thing. But here we have this elite boys prep school and the only limitations they're going to face in life are imposed by these rigid class standards and expectations, but it still fits into that model of the teacher-student story that I think is more of a trope, I guess, than a, than a genre, but it's, it's one to watch for.
1: Yeah, totally. And uh, a fun fact, my brother was in uh, Mrs. Johnson's class who Dangerous Minds was. That's really? so fascinating. Yeah, she, she wrote a book called My Posse Don't Do Homework. Um, and when my brother would cut, cool. class, when <laughs> he would cut class, she'd give me, she'd call the house phone and I was in college and she's like, Hey, where's Paul? That's my, my middle brother. Uh, isn't he at school? <laughs> oh, maybe he's sick. Anyway, she was great. Um, interesting. Wow, yeah. I mean, that's it's, great. it's really the, 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 movie's pretty accurate of what, what would happen in her classroom too. So Valerie,
2: I think this is, this film is an excellent example of the expression of theme and how theme permeates every aspect of a story. It's in every scene, every character, every action, and all these little nuanced actions are all on theme. Even when Kussman tears out the introduction in the poetry book, he does it with a ruler because he just cannot break the rules. For him to just go crazy and rip it out is just so... Against his personal grain, that even if he's going to break the rules, he's going to do it in a neat and orderly way. There is to be no chaos in his life whatsoever. Um, he is not going to think for himself. And um, you know, I keep hearing Steve Pressfield's voice in my head. He talks about Patty Chayefsky all the time, taping when he figured out the theme to whatever he was working on. He would type it out and tape it on his typewriter. And anything that wasn't on theme got deleted. And I think that's a excellent rule to live by. And this. Film, in my opinion, is richer for having the theme woven in so many different uh, ways in the story.
1: Yeah, I mean, even though we've had some discrepancies and you know some debate about what's the genre, um, you know, it's you know settles into the worldview society type thing. Your point about theme is like if you can nail the theme, like this 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 film nails the theme every single scene. There is never, there's no wasted words. There's no wasted action in carpe diem. I mean, it's just so great. So yeah, that's a really uh, very astute observation.
4: I'm a little off topic, but what I noticed is that, especially at the the midpoint, that there seemed to be this tension between the parents, m- most of the faculty, and Cameron, who were in the self-esteem, self-respect level of need in terms of the human needs tanks that are correlated to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So they all seem to be there. They were dealing with that level. Whereas the other boys and Mr. Keating seem to be working in the realm of self-actualization. And so although this was set in 1959, it was really, I mean, I remember watching it when it came out. And again, like I felt when I watched it to prepare for this episode, I, it felt very reminiscent of boomers versus Generation X kids. And so that was really interesting. But then it also reminded me of modes of parenting. I won't get too technical, but there are different ways through history that parents have interacted with their children. And Robin Grill, who wrote Parenting for a Peaceful World, Talks about this. And in essence, that self-esteem, self-respect level that most of the parents and or most of the faculty and the parents are in is this socializing mode where parents believe their children will be successful which they equate with happiness, if they fit in and are socially acceptable. And part of this is mentioned by McAllister when he's having a conversation with Keating about maybe you shouldn't be stirring up these, these emotions and things in the boys. So if they fit in and they're socially acceptable, they will be successful and thus happy. But helping mode parents, on the other hand, they support their children's emotional development. They foster autonomy and self-regulation. And these are the things that seem to me more representative of the need for self-actualization and that tank. And so that's also represented by the difference between a society plot where the need is in that self-respect, self-esteem tank versus the worldview plot, which is in the self-actualization tank. So that was all really interesting to me. And then Since this is a society story as well, I can't help but talk about two topics that were that also came up for me. And Knox's interactions with Chris and where he was touching and kissing her while she was sleeping, slash, unconscious, drunk on the couch at the party, you know, totally typical of 1959 behavior. And I would say in 1989 as well. But it's worth Mentioning, I think that Knox is a he's a likable character. We're rooting for him. When he does this, the only people who protest are Chet, who's quite unlikable. We don't like him at all. Right. And his friend, his football friend. And I would like to think that that wouldn't fly if this movie were being
3: made today. I was so glad that you brought this point up, Leslie, um, because I think it is totally worth mentioning that we would not that that's not okay, and and just the way that was portrayed, just like you said, Knox being the likable character, and how it's just oh we'll just pass it off, but he loves her, and that, you know anyway, kudos for noticing that and pointing it out. Oh, thanks. The other thing I want to bring up is that tweens
4: and teens they that they have to rebel. Like this is part of their, this is part of the process of growing up and individuation. It's the big word, but how do you go from being a child dependent on the adults around you to being someone who can stand up on your own two feet and make decisions and that Tweens and teens, as they're going through this, they need a safe place, a safe way to take risks, make mistakes, and learn how to make responsible decisions. And Keating seems to recognize this and he supports the risk taking. And he even gently brings Dalton back into line when he goes too far. And that great line that that Valerie mentioned earlier sucking the marrow out of life doesn't mean choking on the bone. So I wanted to mention that, again, society, we're dealing with societal problems and that Raising Cain, the book and the documentary, is a great resource about this for boys and their need for roughhousing and risk-taking and that kind of thing, and that it's really important that we make space for that, especially if we want to have boys who respect the fact that they shouldn't touch women who are sleeping or otherwise unconscious.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you, uh, Dr. Watts. <laughs> Dr. Spock's got nothing on you when it comes to that. And and it is interesting that we have actually in society right now, I mean, this is actually a really perfect movie even now. I mean, I, I truly think it's going to stand the test of time for other reasons, but particularly now with how, men and boys uh need to be raised and taught these societal norms that you know like you said it's unacceptable 100% unacceptable to you know kiss someone while they're passed out or take advantage of like that and you know that's a great uh great segue now we learned a little bit about parenting which is you know this the show is just all about like getting better anyway so thanks everyone that wraps it up for this week this great discussion Uh, Thank you, Ann, Kim, Leslie, and Valerie for some wonderful insights into Dead Poets Society. Uh, We hope this discussion helps you and your clients write a better worldview, education story, society story, or um, understand how to be on theme. Uh, Links to the Fool's Cap and other materials will be available in the show notes. Uh, We'd like to invite our listeners to comment, argue with us, our interpretations and generally keep the conversation going on Twitter at StoryGridRT. Join us next time when we'll be taking a look at the 1949 film Double Indemnity. Why not take a look at it during the week and follow along with us as we discuss it. And we'll, we'll see you next week.